Live in Corporate is brought to you by Doximity. Doximity is committed to fostering an inclusive and diverse work environment where differences are valued, practices are equitable, and employees experience a sense of belonging that allows them to bring their full, authentic selves daily. As medicine's largest network, there's an elevated level of responsibility to everything we do. We don't take that responsibility lightly and are committed to working towards a more equitable world inside and beyond our virtual office walls. So if you want to learn more about Doximity, go to your app store and type in D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. Again, that's D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. What's up, y'all? It's Zach. We live in corporate and we are back. Now, listen. If you're listening to this straight up, if you're listening to this, you're listening to the parent of a of a newborn. OK, now, look, you know, y'all remember probably about two years ago, I was excited. You know what I'm saying? We had just brought Emery into the world, really Candace brought Emery into the world. But man, this newborn situation, having a newborn and a two year old. Sheesh. I don't know. Uh, I, man, listen, I, I raised my hand. Like uh, 11 in Hunger Games, I'm with y'all in solidarity to all of my COVID pandemic parents. That's right. Pandemic is still going on. So you're listening to someone who is not just tired. Um, and I don't want to, you know, it's, it's easy to say you're tired, but there's this odd combination y'all I have of just exhaustion and hope and gratitude right now. Right. Like seeing this newborn, seeing Amon, Sinclair Nun, Amon means faith, Sinclair means pure and then none I don't know I mean I don't know it's my my colonizer last name you know what I'm saying I don't know but really thankful um, for this new life and our family expanding I'm really thankful um, for for new opportunities I'm thankful for Living Corporate continuing to grow and expand and I continue to be thankful for the guests uh, that we were able to bring on to Living Corporate Um, the latest one we have for you this week is Dana Brownlee. Listen, Dana Brownlee is a lot of different things. Okay, um, she's a Forbes senior contributor. Uh, she is a foremost expert speaker on uh, the matter topics around anti-racism, leadership, organizational effectiveness. I have been so excited to get Miss Brownlee on Living Corporate for some years now. And, and, I, and I say years as if Living Corporate's been around for decades. Living Corporate's been around a little over four years. So yes, since Living Corporate has started, I've been looking to try to get Ms. Brownlee on the show. And it's just a great time. Um, we talk about anti-racism. We talk about the difference in anti-racism and what is is commonly described as DEI work and the, the points of, of difference there. And we talk about really what anti-racism looks like practically in the workplace. And, you know, cause that word is that term is thrown around a lot, but like, what does it actually really mean organizationally? What does it mean behaviorally? Like, what does it actually mean? And so I'm excited to, um, to bring this conversation to y'all. Okay. Now, before we get to that conversation, we're going to pivot over. All right. A little bit of uh, workplace democracy. All right. Shout out to our new segment. A little bit of uh, some other announcements we got. A little bit of little bit of in-house ads. You know, we do ads. We don't do ads like everybody else be doing ads. Like y'all be doing McDonald's and stuff like that. Like, nah, we be having. It's just different over here. So, you know, make sure 
and, and enjoy the next segment. The next thing you're going to hear after that is going to be my conversation with Dana Brownlee. Talk to you all soon. Living Corporate is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program. It's incredible. Okay, so first off, you didn't know, Rosetta Stone is a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They have fast language acquisition, meaning you're actually going to pick up the language because it's going to provide an immersive experience for you through their program. Speech recognition gives you a trainer for your accent. Convenient, right? You can use it on your computer. You can use it on your phone. Incredible value. Lifetime membership has all languages for any and all trips or language needs in life. That's lifetime access to 25 language courses Rosetta Stone's offers for 50% off. That's a steal, y'all. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, living corporate listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com backslash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com backslash today, today. When you're building a culture of belonging, every word counts. That's why Textio brings the world's most advanced language insights into your hiring and employer brand content. Our industry-leading approach to artificial intelligence and machine learning provides the tools needed to find more diverse candidates. In short, Textio builds more equitable workspaces, guiding businesses and writing more inclusive job posts. And we're building on that success by bringing even more products to the market for all people who share our belief that language matters. Words have power. And at Textio, we harness that power to increase the access and availability of value-driven work for everyone. Living Corporate is brought to you by Doximity. Doximity helps over 2 million medical professionals. We are the largest medical network that includes over 80% of physicians and over 50% of physician assistants and nurse practitioners. We don't take that responsibility lightly and committed to working towards a more equitable world inside and beyond our virtual office walls. If you want to learn more about Doximity, check out your app store at D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. That's D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. Welcome back to the Workplace Democracy Podcast segment brought to you by the Living Corporate Network. I'm your host, Ty Robinson, an attorney licensed to practice law in the state of Maryland. Thanks so much for tuning in again to the podcast segment that informs you about strategies to protect your rights as a professional employee. During this segment, we're going to talk about prison labor and the 13th Amendment exceptions. This is a somewhat different segment because we'll talk about some history around the law related to employment, but not in a typical context. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery and involuntary servitude in 1865, but the amendment had an exception to allow for slavery if it was for punishment of a crime. So to this day, many incarcerated people work for minuscule wages in order to pay for exorbitant phone calls or video calls home and pay for daily items from the commissary. Incarcerated people in some states aren't paid at all. No one should be forced to work for free. Read more about this issue through the links in the show notes. Please understand this podcast segment is only intended for educational purposes and is not a replacement for individualized legal advice. 
You should always seek the services of a licensed attorney who will look at the specific facts of your individual circumstance if you are contemplating legal action. Additionally, the views expressed in this podcast are my own and are not reflective of my employer. Dana Brownlee, first of all, let me just say before you even say a thing, okay, just get out. I am so excited to have this conversation. I've been wanting to have you on Living Corporate now for legitimately three years. And Oh my goodness, thank you so much. No, it's it's honestly it's an honor to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. So look, let's let's talk about this, right? Um people call it the summer of George Floyd. Two years ago, George Floyd uh, was murdered um, in in the street on camera, um, and we we saw this this like renaissance of like white empathy towards black lives, and like being black was like really in vogue. Like you was walking around, people like giving you hugs, white folks apologizing to you, <laughs> handing you candy, people saying hi while I'm jogging, yeah. yay. <laughs> or people open the door for you. I am so sorry. It's like, what in the world is going on? Um, and since then, uh, you know, my bad. They they planted some streets with Black Lives Matter, and uh, they almost put Harriet Tubman on some money, and a lot of things have have happened. Um, yeah. And we saw like a lot of we saw a rise in um, really conscious language. Um, and one of those, and not to say this, this language was not present before, that's not honest. This language has been present for several decades, but, um, we started seeing more and more people talk about, uh, the concept of anti-racism. It's not enough to not be racist. You need to be anti-racist. And then there's a lot of content that started coming up around what's it like to make an anti-racist workforce or to have an anti-racist leadership. I'm curious, like when you, when you consider the term anti-racism, Dana, what comes to mind for you? Well, thank you so much for having me on, and thank you for the kind words. I'm just really, really happy to, to be here and to talk about this. I love this topic. Um, so, you know, what is anti-racism for me? For me, I love the simplicity of it. <laughs> it's like we all learned in, I don't know, what it, what was it, third, fourth grade, that anti <laughs> is that prefix that means kind of against. <laughs> And then there's there's racism, and it's you know specifically, actively, and I think that's a key word there, working against racism, and that's one of the concepts that that Kendi talks about so brilliantly, was that part of the problem is too many of us, and I'll include myself in that, you know, have certainly not been a supporter of racism, but that's not a high bar. <laughs> it's really not a high bar at all. But it's the question is, well, what are you doing to actively work against it on a regular basis? It's like walking by that fire, you know, that house that's on fire. You know, feeling bad um, is not a high bar. <laughs> you know, wishing the house wasn't on fire, not a high bar. That just kind of makes you a decent human being. But where the change comes in is actually taking action. And, you know, I love the fact that you said it's not a new concept. Those who've read Kendi's, you know, work will know that he says he didn't create the term and, you know, he wasn't the originator. And he talks about Angela Davis using it decades earlier. So not a new concept, but 
we just haven't taken that action. Um, and so that's why I really, I, I love the term and, and that's where I choose to place most of my energy. You know, the idea of being like anti something, like to your point, like being against racism, like to me, it would seem to indicate, like it would intimate that there would need to be like specific actions taken to push back against, uh, against the thing. Right. So like when I think about anti-racism, I think about the idea of, okay, well, if you're anti-racist at work, then there are certain things that are happening that are racist at work. And then you're then taking action to be against those racist, those racist things. Like if you were to talk to me about like, or if you were to articulate further, like what does it mean to be anti-racist in action? Like in the, in the, the going ons of the workplace, like what are some things that come to mind for you? Yeah. And I think that can look differently for different people. And the good news of it is it doesn't have to look like, I think some people get uncomfortable or, or they look at the anti-racism work that some people are doing. They think, well, that's not me. And my feeling is, well, that's okay. Do it your way, but just do something. And too many of us, I think use, and I'm going to get to a couple of specific examples, but let me just kind of set it up this way. Too many of us, you know, let's be honest, just don't have the courage to speak up. Just don't have the courage. You know, they're just going about their day. Um, and many, some people have the privilege to not necessarily feel that they need to do something. And so I think that impacts behavior or lack of action or, or behavior as well. So, you know, as I set this up, I also just want to be really clear that, you know, the way it looks for me may not be the way it looks for you or how or where you choose to, to lean in, but I'm just an advocate of doing something. So just one really super simple example that I posted on LinkedIn on uh, Indigenous People's Day, which I don't know, a week ago or so, you know, I'm just going about my day like everybody else. And this is the other thing. I don't, Yes, we need to do big things. Or yes, you might see Katanji Brown Jackson being, you know, nominated or uh, you know, go, joining the Supreme Court. Those are big, huge things. Or LDF winning some major cases are big, huge things. But each of us can do small things, can do little things. And one of my favorite quotes is, I think it's Margaret Mead's, um, you know, talking about that. You know, all it takes is just a few. A small group of thoughtful, committed citizens um, who can change the world. And that's the only thing that really ever has. But back to Indigenous Peoples Day. So I came back from a jog and, you know, looked at my calendar, trying to figure out what I needed to do. And in bright red, I saw Columbus Day. And I mean, that shouldn't seem surprising, I guess. But to me, in this state of, as you teed it up, we're supposed to be so conscious now. We're supposed to be so, you know, considerate. And, and I just thought, you know, how can we still on our calendars, you know, how can these publishers still be calling this Columbus Day with everything that's known, you know, knowing the impact that that likely has on indigenous people and their, and their communities and, and all of us. And so I said, you know, I'm not buying this calendar anymore. Who makes this calendar? Let me go. You know, we've got the Googler now. I mean, I didn't have that growing up, but now it's super easy. I feel like there are no excuses. So I hop on the Googler, you know, say who makes this and find out it was, you know, it was an at a glance calendar. And I found that they were um, 
there's a company, I think the company is, is Acro or Acco. It's a $2 billion company that manages multiple brands. And I just posted on LinkedIn and I'm, you know, hey, in 2022, this is not okay. And I really would like to know what your plan is for doing this differently moving forward. This, you know, this really is not okay. I'm thinking about all the, you know, it's a $2 billion company. It's a lot of people. I'm thinking, what about all the people who work there? How does that make them feel knowing that this is what's being put out? And so I put that out there, not because I expected, you know, I, not because I expect them to call me up and say, oh, okay, thanks for letting us know. We're going to go change it. Um, but as an example, like, hey, everybody, this is a tiny, tiny thing. It literally took me 10 minutes to do this? What is something that, you know, we all could be doing and myself included on a regular basis? Cause I get that question all the time. Like how do you move beyond book clubs and how do you move beyond feeling bad? Well, small actions like that, that's how you move beyond it. I know it might not sound terribly sexy or it didn't go viral or anything like that, but you don't know the impact that that pressure, that small pressure, when all of us are creating small bits of pressure, it makes a difference. This podcast, Living Corporate, it's brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Whether you're just starting out or managing a growing brand, Squarespace makes it easy to create a beautiful website, engage with the audience, and sell anything from products to content to time all in one place on your terms. Let me tell you something. Y'all might not know this, but Living Corporate, we started our whole journey on Squarespace. My website, ZacharyNunn.com, it's on Squarespace. I can't tell you how much I appreciate its fluid engine, the ability to create world-class templates and design. It's very intuitive, incredible. We have custom merch through our Squarespace. We have an incredible asset library, so I can always mix it up, switch and swap. It's super dope. And the fact that you can host all types of content, video, audio, all types of media, you can put all on your Squarespace. I can't recommend it enough. If you want to learn more about Squarespace, check out squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com backslash corporate to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com backslash corporate to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You know, like, so I, one, thank you for this incredible answer. My follow-up to that is, do you believe that the weight of anti-racist action is uh, the same between black folks and majority slash white folks. You know, I thought you were going to ask me a different question. So, <laughs> Give me the question. Answer, answer, as, answer, as you were starting. answer the question you thought I was going to ask you. Okay. So what I thought you were going to ask is people of color. When you said black folks, I thought you were going to go to... Is it different for black folks versus people of color? Um, and the answer for me is certainly not necessarily and oftentimes not. And I think that that's evidenced um, not to say. So, you know, let me be clear. 
racism and oppression comes in many forms. And there are many racial groups that have been oppressed um, since the beginning of time. It's not unique to Black people, certainly, or Indigenous people, certainly. I mean, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act was real. I mean, so we know that this has happened, um, that many racial groups have been victimized and marginalized. So it's not to, to minimize that in any way. But I think that the the recent example that we had with the Los Angeles City Council president who, you know, was forced to resign, a woman who herself was a woman of color, but still found it appropriate to use racist, anti-black tropes. So one of the dangers that we have is painting with a really broad brush and assuming that every anybody who's not white has the same experience. Oh, that's a thousand percent. Right. Mm-hmm. I think like and, and the thing about it is like we can look at we can look at just a bunch of data across the world and see that anti-blackness is a, is a global phenomenon. Right. It's you. It's, it's a unique it's a unique um, point of oppression. Um, across the world it's global it's distinct and it has a unique history i mean yes cameron diaz and viola davis might both technically be women of color but you can't tell me that hollywood views them the same and they're going to you know experience the same level of oppression a hundred percent right and i think like so there's and I and then that's I've always had a challenge. I've always challenged like I had issue with even the term people of color and BIPOC because I believe there is a level of erasure there. And 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 frankly, I think there's a level of anti-blackness there. Um, and so I appreciate that answer. Um, and I do believe it's a nuance, not a high. It's not as nuanced as people. Cause a lot of people say, Dana, but a lot of people say this is a nuanced conversation to kind of get away from just having uncomfortable dialogue. So it's it's nuanced. It's not that nuanced, but it is a nuanced conversation regarding um, the points of solidarity and difference in non-white communities and space and cultures. Um, I do want to go back to my other question though, of what does it look like to challenge white folks as it pertains to anti-racism? And I asked this question because just in every, in every measurable facet, Dana, like from like health, uh, uh, comorbidities and, uh, wealth accumulation and education access and, uh, acceleration, a uh, career acceleration to unemployment, to food access, to housing access, to financial um, loans, like, like every aspect white folks have an exponential advantage and baked into the very fabric of the way that we operate as an, as a colonized society, Western society, uh, particularly where, where you and I have this conversation in America. Um, and so I ask, I ask, I, I want to talk about white folks um, and what their accountability is, because I'll put my cards on the table. I do think they have an outsized accountability when it comes to anti-racism, because they have so much more power baked into the very fabric of how we exist. And so I'm curious, like, what's your position on that? And like, what does it look like if if you if you agree? Um, and then if you do agree, what does it look like to to drive accountability and engagement for them to, to be anti-racist? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, and I think I'm largely in agreement with you. 
when you were talking, one of the quotes that I saw on LinkedIn, and I wish I could attribute it to someone because it's not mine, but for me, it really, really cut to the core from a black, white perspective. Um, and the quote was, white supremacy won't end until white people begin to see it as a white problem that they need to fix instead of a black problem that they need to empathize with. And for me, that kind of said it all. And it's not in, in any way to say, hey, this is your stuff. We don't want to have anything to do with it. Because I'm a believer in, you know, unfortunately, we're in such a bad shape. It's like racism is a multi-lane highway. Pick your lane and just keep your foot on the gas. So I'm a believer in, yes, we all need to be working towards it. But clearly, this is a problem that was created historically within the white community. And there's a lot of work and accountability that needs to be done there. And so that's why, you know, sometimes there's this debate about white people, you know, participating and they shouldn't participate. Whatever. I'm a big proponent of them participating because I think they need to have a whole lot of accountability, you know, and, um, but before you can even have the accountability, you need to acknowledge and you need to, you know, we got to get past um, this, you know, I think about doing my daughter's hair the other day and it was, it was all kind of, you know, it was a little ornery there and I wanted to take the time to comb it through and she didn't want me to comb it through. So we were rushing. So I was like, okay, let me just slap some stuff, you know, just make it kind of look good on the outside. But I know inside it's a, it's a bird's nest. And so I, I need to, you know, still comb it through and, I, and for, I think that's what we've kind of done as a broader society. It's like on the outside, it, it looks, you know, it looks nice. I mean, you know, we got Obama and you look you're, like you're doing well and, you know, all this stuff. But we still know we can look at the outcomes. You know, I look in, I live in Georgia and I, you know, I actually, I, I'm sitting right now five minutes from uh, Raphael Warnock's church. I live in, I, I live around the corner from Martin Luther King's birth home and We've never, ever, for those data nerds, let's, you know, let's be clear, ever had a black female governor in this country. Zero. Okay, try, try to finagle that number. Zero. So why would that be? To me, there are only two major buckets of reasoning to get you to why we've never elected a black female governor in this particular case, but certainly we could cite tons of statistics. We could look at the Fortune 500 CEOs. We could look at um, disparities in, in household wealth. I mean, there are just tons of statistics that we could look at. You know, to me, either there's something deficient in the capacity inherently of black women, or there's something wrong with the process. There is something in the system that is over-representing males in particular, um, white people in particular, white males, or, you know, so it's one of those two. You kind of can't have it. It's not an accident. Statistically, there's no way it could be an accident. That there's been zero. That, yeah, that has been zero. And there are other zeros that we could talk about. So, so I'm saying, yes, accountability is critical, but what I find, you know, the barrier, the prerequisite, the barrier that precedes that. It's just the simple acknowledgement that there has been, you know, white people have been overrepresented in wealth and um, 
and health and, and, and financial security, you know, and all these other areas. So absolutely, um, I would agree that, that that needs to happen. And that's one of the reasons why I tend to try to focus on facts, like try not to argue the emotion of it, um, but try to focus on the facts. So when people, you know, try to deny that, well, why do you think that would be? So if black wealth, house median household wealth is 10% of white wealth, why do you think that would be? Because they've got to give one of two answers, either either an answer that sounds kind of racist because there's something inherent in black people or something that acknowledges the systemic racism that obviously has been cultivated, didn't happen overnight, cultivated over hundreds of years. Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mammoth. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. You know, and it's interesting because, like, you said something earlier about, like, some of us just don't have the courage to speak up and, like, really. And and here's the thing, like, I try not to, and it's not, I don't do a good job of it consistently, Dana, but I, I, I try not to hold it against black folks who choose not to shake the table or rattle or say something when they think something is wrong because we have to survive. We live in a capitalist society. You need money to live. And it's the data has been proven that black folks are often when it comes to layoffs and um, even just retaliatory behaviors or um, increased performance management or performance improvement plans, black folks are on the, the short end of the stick on all those different things. So, I'm not going to shame. I'm, I try not to wag my finger or shake my head too hard when people just say, hey, I, I think that's wrong, but I just got to, I have a family. I got to survive, whatever. My issue, my only caveat to that is, is when black folks do step on other black folks to then advance and move around. And that's, that's the part. And that's, and again, like there's history there as well. Like we had uh, Dr. Caitlin Rosenthal on who wrote this book called Accounting for Slavery. And we talked about like even just the, the history, the meta narrative of uh, black folks uh, being delegated to manage other black folks and keep them in line, and so I and I do believe we see that phenomena carry forward in corporate America. All that being said, is all that said is I don't think it's fair that to say one I don't think it's fair to say white people can't participate. They absolutely need to be participating in anti racism, and then two. Um, you know, it's just not, it's not fair to expect for black folks and brown people now more broadly to do all the labor because we don't even have the power 
to drive um, real systemic change because we're not in the positions to do that. Um, so continuing forward, you know, when I think about anti-racism, um, I, and I just said the word, so I kind of gave myself away, but power redistribution, right? You think about like organizational equity, you think about um, decision-making, ultimately those things come down to power. Like how many, com- like in, in your research, in your work, in your con- in the in the work that you lead, um, and in the discussions that you facilitate, Dana, and the work that you and the with the clients also that you work with and consult, how often does like power as a concept come up when it comes to like the concept of anti-racism? Well, I think it's really important. I think I think it's fundamental. Um, I think that it, it is danger. It, it's scary to to think about the fact that the reality is, as you've said. This certainly is not something that first minoritized communities or historically marginalized communities should be expected to fix. (laughs) Again, we didn't create this um, to be expected to fix on their own. And in many spaces and in many situations and circumstances, we don't have the power um, because historically white people, more specifically white men, have been overrepresented um, in powerful positions or decision-making positions, et cetera. So I think that 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 power issue is really important. Um, I would like to go back to the comment that you made before about about not holding black people, not, not holding black people accountable, but not, but I do think that's a very complicated, nuanced topic and and I can you know just offer my thoughts there because I I understand the pushback in terms of you know we all have to feed our families and we know that um we know that we work in spaces where um there may be consequences for for speaking up and speaking out and I get that And that's why I so hammer home the point of feel free to do it in your way, okay? You you know, your speaking out does not necessarily mean that you're picketing in front of the, um, you know, in front of the company or, you know, you're firing off, you know, you're ranting to the CEO or you're rolling around the floor foaming at the mouth. You know, I think people sometimes always go to the extreme, okay? You don't, that doesn't necessarily have to be your tactic, Maybe you have a different way of doing it. Maybe you have access to certain data or maybe um, there's just other ways. I mean, you might have a different style. You might have a particular subject matter expertise. Um, there are different ways to do it. I have more of a fr- frustration with people who use that as an excuse for doing nothing. That's a, that's a bar. That that's where, real. That's real. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and again, a lot of this to me goes back to the history when you look back historically, I just always go to where would we be if 50 years they all wanted to keep quiet and not do anything? Not to mention the fact that they had so much less and they were willing to risk so much more. Even though I can, I mean, I can understand. I don't want my major clients to you know, fire me tomorrow. I don't want my husband to get laid off. I mean, I get that. But when I think about the difference that it's going to make in our lifestyle, you know, for many of us, you know, we're not willing to, you know, go without cable for for two weeks. It's like, but 
the the you know the when they did the bus boycott, they walked. They boycotted for over a year. They were like you said, they walked. They walked. They were willing, and I mean, and most of them were going to jobs cleaning houses. So it's not like they had six figures in the bank and 401k and a SEP IRA and they didn't have any of that. But they were willing to sacrifice almost everything. And they were. I mean, their houses were getting bombed and they were still doing, they were sending their kids out. There's a lack of, so some of that though, oh man, Oh, Dana, we about to, oh, we about to have a podcast now. <laughs> See, some of that, though, comes down to, and, and for and for greater context, of course, like, not all the black folks were even pro-King. Uh, a lot of them liked what they had and didn't want to give it up. That's true. You know, but, That's but true. to your point, though, like, there was a level of organiz- organ- organization um, that, Right. That black folks historic in that era were willing to engage in communal organization and sharing, but I think though what I often see um, and what I've experienced firsthand is that um, black folk, a lot of black folks, especially like in corporate tie spaces, when they reach a certain level, Dana, they don't really want to. Oh, they yeah. don't really want to be black no more, right? And I think like not in the ways that. Not in the ways that are tangible and helpful to their community. They want to, they really want to be white or white adjacent as a pretend. They, they really, they don't, they don't want, they don't want to coordinate and they don't want to sacrifice and they don't want to give not in, not in any context that would threaten um, to your point, your 401k, you said some other thing. I don't even know what you're talking about. Say it again. 401ks. <laughs> the SEP IRA. SEP IRA. What is the SEP IRA? Just cause I'm, you know, I left corporate 20 years ago. Oh, let me so look, I'm let me look the, up SEP IRA. The SEP IRA. You, every time you, you've been noticed, I've been looking down. I'm over here like, what is he talking about? Oh, simplified employee pension plan. Oh yeah. That sounds right. That sound, it's for entrepreneurs. Okay. Well, let, yeah. me, let me click on that. I'll, I'm going to bookmark that later. Uh, so, <laughs> so here's the thing. I do, th- I do think too, that like, you know, when you think about how corporate America has shifted and changed, um, especially as we've like uh, integrated as a society, right? Like we black and brown people have been presented with this, like this carrot of like, Hey, you can be a part of us. You can be one of us. You can, you can have a, you can have a seat at this table. You'll be the only one at the table and it'll be a kitty seat. And we're going to give you a kid's menu, but you can sit here. And, you know, I think that's the, that's the, one of the challenges, right? Where you think back, like back in the day, 50 years ago, black folk, like they, like, yes, yes, there were black executives back then, but they were, it was literally like five black people, right? Like it, it was virtually, they, that, that didn't happen. That didn't exist. So it was easier to practice solidarity and community because we were all that we had. Whereas today, I think a lot of us, we buy into this illusion that we're somehow different. We're somehow special and that we're not like the other black folks. We're such and such because we got this degree. We got this certification and we work at this bank or this company that could lay us off today, but we work here. So it's different. So all that being said, I want to get back to like, let's talk a little bit about like the landscape of DEI today. You talked and, and um, you talked a little bit about 
the lack of black women governors in Georgia. I'm actually from Rome, Georgia, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I'm up the street. You know what I'm saying like a couple hours away, not too far. Um, uh, but um, it's it's interesting as I look at this landscape. I see like an increasingly right leaning political um, space, right? I think like everything is like everything is pushing that way. There's narratives in the mainstream media around the fact that this 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 foregone conclusion that the GOP is going to take over uh, the House and the Senate. You got. Uh, Trump alluding to running again. If he don't go to jail, he ain't gonna go to jail. But you know, like we're 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 also then seeing like DEI teams again being let go. We're seeing budgets continue to shrink as we pair that with economic anxieties around just what a potential recession looks like in twenty twenty three. There's a lot of things going on. What is your prospects uh, as you look at like diversity, equity, inclusion, the work that you do, the work that that a lot of folks are doing out here? to create equitable uh, cultures, where do you see that going like in the next couple of years? So first I need to step back again um, to clarify, provide context <laughs> because I view DEI in workplace anti-racism is pretty different. And so I just want to give that context first. And I think that, too often what happens is they're so conflated. They're kind of viewed as one and the same. And I would argue that that's one of the reasons why we've made so little progress, specifically related to racism, anti-Black racism in particular, over the past several decades, is that most organizations have DEI. Uh, Most of them have a requirement that the organization exists not necessarily that it be impactful or that there be specific outcomes, but just that, you know, there's an existence. Sometimes that's one person. Sometimes that's a group of people. I think that that's really important work. But I think that unfortunately what's happened over time, because of course DEI is looking at a range of differences, both visible and invisible. In fact, most of them are probably invisible, That's a really, really broad umbrella. And every year, it just seems to get broader and broader and broader and broader. And I'll just share just a super quick anecdote. I remember back when I was still in corporate, and again, this is like 20 years ago, and I attended a DEI session and a white woman was leading the session. And she really started with, this, you know, emphasizing the point that, you know what, DEI is not just race and gender. It is so much more. And then she proceeded for the rest of the workshop to talk about and focus on everything except race and gender. And it's not to say that those other areas aren't important because they are. And everyone, I mean, people can be marginalized for a range of reasons. And we truly do want to create inclusive work environments. And that means everybody, whether you feel marginalized um, because of your learning style or your sexual orientation or, or for whatever, for your parental status, for your marital status, your age, these are all legitimate, important areas to explore. But what I've found is 
there's a beauty in having that broad umbrella, but there's also a real danger and a real risk with how that breath can be used because let's keep it real, too many organizations are choosing to ignore, are choosing to use that breath to hide under. That umbrella becomes a hiding spot because you know what? I, you know, A, B, C, and D, you know, if A is racism and, you know, B is anti-blackness, you know, I'm going to start with C and just keep on going. One, because I may not be competent to speak on it. Or two, I just may be uncomfortable. I'd much rather, the white woman who was standing leading my workshop, she didn't want to talk about racism. She didn't want to talk about blackness. She wasn't comfortable talking about that stuff. So she had like 20 other things she could pick from. So she, you know, spun that roulette wheel and just decided to pick something else. So for me, again, if we look at the outcomes, we look at the number of black um, CEOs in the Fortune 500, or you look at the number of black people sitting on corporate boards or in executive positions in IT firms, you know, there's so many different metrics you can choose from. But if you look at the fact that DEI is not new. I mean, DEI has been around, you know, since the, I think officially it started uh, with the Kennedy executive order in the fifties and, you know, it's, and it's really been around since seventies, eighties for sure, you know, in, in many organizations. But when you look at the data, the metrics, why has the plight of black professionals not been enhanced dramatically over that time? And I would argue that DEI has, while I think it's been helpful in many spaces, it is not the panacea. It has not the um, it has not been the fix necessarily for anti-black racism in particular. So I'm a big believer in both and. I think we need DEI. We need to focus on creating, you know, broad, inclusive workplaces where everyone can can feel valued. But if we're really trying to be serious about fixing systemic racism, we got to get in there and address it and attack it as a specific business imperative and as a specific challenge, a specific problem, not just stick it, append it to DEI and think that, oh, okay, every Wednesday, not Wednesday, every February, we can just have a couple lunch and learns. Um, to celebrate a heritage month and think that that somehow is going to ameliorate centuries of systemic racism. It's not going to do it. To me, it's almost like when COVID hit. The CDC, yes, they don't, they care about a broad range of diseases and they're all important and they all require attention. But guess what? When COVID hit, they said, oh, guess what? We, we gotta, we still gotta do that other stuff, but we have to specifically gather resources and focus on this pandemic and develop some very specific solutions to address this very specific harm. And that's what I see most workplaces don't do and probably won't continue to do in the future until and unless there is some recognition or some pressure um, to that end. You know, it's interesting, like to that end, to that point, like, you know, I've been having conversations around the fact that, like, I think diversity, equity, inclusion, as is, as it's most commonly presented and pushed, is really a scam. Like, it's largely, it's largely positioned to benefit 
everybody but black folks. Like, and oftentimes, um, we're just kind of starting to see some narrative and language and focus around black women, kind of. But like historically, it's really been a space where I've seen white women really accelerate their careers. Like it sounds as if to me, though, your framing, your position is that anti-blackness and that work is much more for the lack. This this is gonna not to trigger anybody. But this is like more activist. It's a it's a much more it's a it's a much more like pointed, forward-facing uh, work than corporatized diversity, equity, inclusion work. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I I think that for me, you know, it just comes down to the fact that DEI is a very broad umbrella. It's it's focused on creating inclusive environments and that covers a lot of communities. That covers probably 12, 15, 20 different communities. And unfortunately, the irony, the irony is because much of this work has been doing is done in workplaces and spaces that are somewhat anti-black and are hostile and do have systemic racism. They're not really motivated to focus on racism. And, and I think that's kind of a, a no, a no brainer. And so even though technically <laughs> it's, it should be, you know, one of those communities, uh, I find it's not prominently represented. I find it's not sufficiently represented. Um, and, 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 and another example for me, for example, I do think life experience makes a huge difference. Life experience and education. I don't think just cause you're a black person, you're an authority. Um, but I do think life experience makes a difference. And this is, you know, another example. Like I get requests all the time to talk about DEI and I am very clear. In fact, there's a bio. I have a separate bio because I am not a DEI expert. I am not. I am a workplace anti-racism thought leader. And I'm very specific about that for a number of reasons. But one of the, one of the reasons too is I recognize that I just am not knowledgeable. I'm not the right person. If you want to have a broader DEI conversation, and let's say, for example, we want to deal with, you know, gender identity issues, sexual orientation issues. Okay, now I'm a student. I'm not a teacher. Okay. And I respect those spaces enough to acknowledge the fact that I'm not the appropriate person because I just don't have the knowledge, I don't have the life experience and, and I, that's required to handle that competently and to handle that responsibly. So I, I just think that they're two different things, almost like healthcare and cardiology. Okay. Just because, you know, I'm not going to ask my dermatologist to be my marriage counselor. You know, those are just two different things. I just, you know, and we try to pretend we have, oh, it's all, you know, we just try to think, oh, this person works in DEI. Not to mention the fact that DEI almost always is part of HR. And a lot of times, again, when you go about, when you focus on rooting out systemic racism, a lot of the causes, a lot of the potential solutions, a lot of the issues are going to be you know, you're going to find them in marketing. You're going to find them in R&D, product development, medicine, law. You're going to find it in those line organizations where people are actually doing the work, not necessarily in HR. 
So like my husband's a physician. And so he's always talked to me about how racism shows up from a clinical perspective. And I've worked with a lot of other doctors and I, you know, just wrote an article about um, the maternal mortality crisis and how that impacts black and brown communities more significantly. COVID, another great example, is the HR person, you know, and it's not in any way to, you know, demean, you know, to HR. And I'm not trying to do that at all, but I'm saying if we're trying to get really clear in terms of, okay, this process is broken and this process, the way it's um, contrived, uh, discriminates, um, certain against certain people or advantages certain people it's the people who are using the process day in and day out who are in a position to see that you know again using my husband's example you know he tells me about the things that are happening but they're happening um in a clinical setting the person who's sitting in corporate hr is not going to know that it's not going to be able to take action on that or make a suggestion or say this isn't working or this isn't right so those are some of the reasons why I feel that, you know, one, they're just two different things. Um, and two, they're, they're not, they're not working, uh, to the, to benefit many black professionals, um, to the, as well as they could. And, and certainly not as they purport to be, because you can, again, look on the surface and it, you know, we have the the team or the, the chief diversity officer, a lot of it looks good on the surface, but I just always drive people to the metrics. You know, what do the metrics look like? And even there you have to be careful because, you know, we could, you know, throw, sprinkle some chocolate chips in there and make things look a little better on the surface. And again, as we all know, diversity doesn't necessarily mean inclusion. So. Come on, Dana. Come on, now you dropping all the bars. This is why I want to have you on the show. See, thank you so much for being a guest. I know we consider you a friend of the show. It's funny, I had this joke, but like the timing is off, but I'm going to say it anyway. So it was funny because you were talking about like Black History Month, but like now we got Juneteenth too. So. Right. You know what I'm saying? Water, oh yeah, two. two. I mean, watermelon, watermelon chicken sandwiches for everybody. And then we can just, you know, just keep it moving. I think like that's really where, you're absolutely right. Um, it, they're two different things. I appreciate you coming on the show to talk about this space and this work. Um, and I appreciate your pushback on the idea that everyone has accountability to do something, right? Everyone doesn't have to create a media network that centers Nepalese black and brown folks to work. Everybody doesn't have to be uh, a several times published writer featured in a bunch of different major publications. Like everyone doesn't have to rail or pick it outside, but everybody can do something to push for um, for anti-racist. So I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And I think, and I put my, again, I always put myself in there. Like I could do more. Uh, and I think it's, it's hard to an extent because I think the natural inertia, it's not because you like racism. It's just because you're going about your day and I got to feed the dog and I got to, you know, register my daughter for her SSAT class. And, you know, it's just, it's too easy to do nothing. Doing nothing is so enticing because it's just so much easier. Um, and it's, you know, lazier, but I just call us, you know, I just call us to do more and, you know, and there, we can unpack that even more. I, I do think also people negative fantasize too much. I think that people are too quick to go to the worst case scenario. It's like speaking up in a meeting, you know, chances are you're not going to get fired tomorrow. Um, but I think that that also becomes 
an easy out. It's like you automatically mentally go to the absolute worst case scenario and assume that that's going to happen every single time. And it's not. Um, I, and I do think it's okay to be strategic, just like you should be strategic with everything else. Um, ask yourself, is this the hill I'm willing to die on? Or be strategic in terms of, okay, there are five things I could push back about. Decide which one is the one I'm going to choose this time. Am I the right messenger? Like I might choose not to, not necessarily out of lack of courage, but I'm more so being strategic because I realize I'm not really the best person to push on this. Maybe somebody else would be in a better position. Um, I don't think I would be as successful as somebody else might be. So there's nothing wrong with being strategic and saying, you know, maybe it's not the right time. I'm not the right messenger or this isn't the right way to do it. I need to come back two months from now once I have more data and do it this way and, you know, enlist some support and some yeah, someone else maybe who's had similar experiences. So there's nothing wrong with being strategic or doing it your way. But I just think that doing nothing is what too many of us do too often. And that that's not going to get us where we need to go. And I feel like we owe it to our kids. I absolutely feel like we owe it to our kids. Dana, I mean, I, I, I don't know if we can really end it better than that. Um, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for coming on Living Corporate. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Um, excited about this conversation. Now, look, you're always writing something. You're always building and working on something. What would you like to like? What should people be looking out for? What are you excited about? Like, what can we make sure that we promote before you get up out of here? Well, I, if you want to connect with me, um, please follow me on LinkedIn or on my Forbes page. I mean, that's where I'm speaking most often and that's where I'm posting. This morning, I just posted an article about this amazing man from Sierra Leone, but he lives here named Mohammed Kamara. And he lost his sister and his aunt in the same month in 2017 to pregnancy-related complications. And that motivated him to create a virtual gynecology telehealth platform um, specifically targeted to, to black and brown women. And um, I just think he's just an amazing example. You know, he's 30 years old, I think, around at the time. And um, it would have been much safer for him to just keep doing his corporate finance gig. I mean, he was doing great, but he really wanted to tackle this problem. And he's now been supported by Medscape and, and Google and, and just done some some really amazing things. So, yeah, follow me on LinkedIn and Forbes. And I uh, just trying to do my part. And, and I love interacting with similarly minded individuals. So thanks again for having me. It was an honor, Dana. Hope to talk to you soon. Yes, would love to. Peace. And we're back. Yo, shout out to Dana Brownlee. Listen, I want y'all to understand that anti-racism is not just an attitude. It's an action, right? It's a series of actions that you you execute on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute basis, right? It's not just jargon and um, rhetoric. It's 
a certain level of personal accountability you take on you. That's right. Whoever's listening to this, you take on to, t- to make a more equitable world. I fully and wholeheartedly 100% believe that white professionals, white executives, white leadership have a responsibility in this season to lead anti-racism efforts. I also believe, and I agree with Dana Brownlee that everyone, everyone has something that they can do. Everyone doesn't have to build a living corporate. Everyone doesn't have to be a Forbes senior contributor. Everyone doesn't have to write, you know what I'm saying? Like a bunch of best-selling books, shout out to Minda Hearts. Like, but everyone has something they can do. Everyone has something they can contribute. It doesn't have to look like everybody else, but it has to be something. That's right. Has to be something, right? For anti-racism to really happen, we all have to lift up and do something. And as I say that again, the responsibility, the bulk of responsibility for creating anti-racist movements, anti-racist cultures, anti-racist environments are those who wield the most power. And those who have the most power are white executives. Okay, that's right. So I'm not going to act like we're all equal in our responsibility because we all don't have equal amounts of power. Right. With great power comes great responsibility. Shout out Spider-Man. You know what I'm saying? Uh, well, really shout out to Uncle Ben. Right. I mean, he was the one who dropped that gym. And I mean, you know, y'all might think it's always just a comic book, but I'm saying that was that was a bar. That was a bar. Right. Your your responsibility is uh, correlates with the power that you have. That's just I mean, come on. Like, that's just that's just good wisdom right there. Shout out to Stan Lee, to be honest. Anywho, um, (laughs) listen, I appreciate you. You're listening to me record this conversation. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. I hope that you're taking the time that you need, especially in this season where tech organizations are laying folks off left and right and then hiring folks right back and trying to bring on contractors and just to use them and kick them to the curb. I mean, as we're looking at Twitter completely evaporate in front of our eyes, I, I, I hope that you're taking the time that you need for you. I hope this season reminds you that you matter to you, right? You matter to you. You might matter to other folks for a season or as long as you are giving them what they want, but you ultimately need to matter to you. All right. So take care of yourself. Make sure you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend about us. Tell a coworker about us. Tell a, um, tell a, uh, tell your racist uh, supervisor about us too, especially this episode. I mean, it's a great episode. It's about anti-racism. You know, maybe it's gonna be like good education for him. You know what I mean? That way you, you don't have to educate him. You can just be like, yo, here's a link. I'm just sharing with him. You know what I mean? All right. <laughs> I love y'all. <laughs> Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.